0: From Green biz Group welcome to this week's edition of 350 I'm Joel McCaur here this week in Amsterdam On this week's edition it's time for 30 under 30 why circularity needs a positive narrative transforming the world's food systems and a circular economy takes shape in the Netherlands. We are going Dutch this week on 350. It's June 7th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, I'm in Amsterdam. And um, Heather Clancy, where in the world are you?
1: Je suis en Montréal. Très bien. I'm in Montreal. Ah, c'est bon. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I am at the Michelin Moving On Summit, Sustainable uh, Mobility. And it's a pretty darn cool conference. Uh, there's, I'm surrounded by autonomous electric things of all sizes Ooh. and shapes it's kind of cool
0: that's cool and you're out and right yeah. now i think at the event so there's a little background noise and so just
1: there is the some background noise of noise,
0: excitement so. and uh, <laughs> accelerating excitement. change and all of that is taking
1: place <laughs> <laughs> yep 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 yeah,
0: uh, it's awesome was,
1: i mean and it's exciting so
0: what's the gist of moving on what's 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 going on there
1: so Michelin, this is—I um, don't know—I know that know this is the third year in Montreal, um, but the, the the company stages this event to basically engage in dialogues about the future of sustainable um, transportation. And so Michelin, the the French um, company, is is convenes the event. There's about five thousand people here um, of all. Ilk, right? There's a lot of, actually, a lot of um, technology demos here, um, especially from companies both in North America and not in North America. So it's a it's a wonderful international event. Uh, Michelin actually itself had a pretty cool announcement this week. They have a new sort of airless wheel technology. It's called the Unique Puncture-Proof Tire System. And so the idea is to, obviously. Decrease the amount of resources needed to to produce wheels and, and, and tires and so forth um, To to zero or near zero and also there's some safety implications especially for autonomous vehicles So kind of kind of cool technology that they're, they're gonna start testing with general motors. Wow
0: So you're talking tires, and I'm talking circular economy, so it's all part of a theme oh.
1: Yes, it all goes around So, Joel, you're very curious about what I'm doing in Montreal, the city of my academic career. Ooh, nice. What are you doing in Amsterdam?
0: Well, the things I can talk... No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, So, this is part of week one of a two-week European jaunt. Um, I did a similar thing last year where uh, the anchor tenant of which is uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation EMF Summit uh, next week in London. So, this week um, I was in Geneva... And, um, and Amsterdam, and uh, some just really great meetings. I spent a day at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and another half day at the World Economic Forum uh, in Geneva, both in Geneva, and talking about all that's going on and the really exciting things they're doing and and some of the partnerships that we're going to be engaging in. Um, we're already doing some, and, and we're going to grow those partnerships. So that was Geneva, and we'll play um, an interview I did with uh, – one of our former 30 Under 30s, uh, Emily Grady, who uh, was, was with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development in New York at the time, she was bestowed that honor, and now she's uh, in Geneva, and um, we sort of caught up with her. And, um, and Amsterdam, we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later, but um, 30 Under 30, this was a big week.
1: This was a big big week. Uh, so much great feedback, This, as I mentioned in our previous episode, I have been so inspired by this particular class of just the energy keeps getting (laughs) amped up every year. uh, And the the things that these individuals are doing is so inspiring
0: for people at all. Is that because, um the, the, the group is more impressive, or we're we casting a wider net, or you're just tuning into it more? Why do you think that
2: is?
1: I think all of the above. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't benchmark classes of individuals against other classes, but I do have to say that we are getting far more. Um, I, submissions um, and nominations for this than ever before and I believe that and by the way they don't all have sustainability in their title and I think that's a really important part of this yeah I I noticed that yeah so that the recognition that you can have an impact on on the business and and sustainability of the business without that in the title and for me that maybe is a kind of a a tipping point or a um, a maybe subtle not so subtle shift that we see going on
0: yeah and uh, that's I think uh, it's, it's maybe not even that subtle. It's part of what's going on with the profession of sustainability. It's being embedded in more and more places and you don't have to have sustainability in your title, to your point, to be a sustainability professional. And I guess that's progress. So in this episode of Green Biz 350, we're going to be playing little excerpts of several of the interviews we did with uh, the 2019 Green Biz 30 under 30 honorees. Um, but before we do that, Let's check in with what else is going on in the week in review. So, circularity seems to be the theme, and it's not co- coincidental. It's, it's it's a couple of things. One is it's part and parcel of the fact that circularity, the circular economy, is just on the ascendance uh, around the world. Um, and we, I'll, I'll just tell you right now, I was spent one of my half days in. Amsterdam um, at fashion for good uh this incubator showroom classroom demonstration project um, a five story building not too far from where i 'm staying that was created by the c n a foundation and a bunch of others and Bill McDonough was one of the uh, founders of it too. Oh my God, it was so impressive what's going on in circular fashion it's it's really uh pretty amazing. And we've been running in the run-up to our Circularity 19 conference, which is coming up in about, what, less than two weeks, about 10 days. Yep. We've uh, been running more and more circular economy stories.
1: Yes, indeed. And so we we're featuring a couple this week, but although I do want to just make one editorial comment is here at this sustainable mobility event there's a lot of circular economy sessions, so it pervades everything and' talk that out yeah so talk yeah, yeah. a little bit
0: more about that what's the...
1: well so part of it is the whole reverse logistics challenge right and I am and in, prep, in preparing for a session that i 'm leading at circularity nineteen I, I spoke with REI a little bit about this is you know when you're when you're a retailer and you're talking about taking things back the implications of taking that stuff back and how do you get it to the you know the point of pickup instead of the point of delivery and then back into the right into the right distribution center or the right um, dismantling center and so forth so there are a number of companies here um, talking about that and what what sorts of technologies might be used for picking up things so you know you talk about these robots delivering things to the doorstep from down the block well why not reverse it and so, you know, definitely something that organizations are thinking about here. Um, you know, and, and for me, uh, a couple of the stories that we ran this week, one of them is particularly visceral. And it's about the messaging of all this. And our, our analyst and the director of the Circularity Conference, Lauren Phipps, wrote this week about the messaging, right? And we all know that the sea turtle straw photo, we, we've all seen it. Um, we've seen other things like a seahorse with its tail wrapped around cotton swab. And we're all sort of... Over that. Uh, we're, yeah, we're over that. And um, so Lauren focused this week on how to tell this story in a way that's going to have more of an impact um, in, in terms of prompting action. And so she points to a, an artist, um, Ben Von Wong, and who's really doing things like um, you know, sh- showcasing... What forty one hundred pounds of e waste looks like, and 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 doing these absolutely gorgeous um, art installations that are based and using these objects that we're talking about cleaning up, um, yeah. and so you know making that impact. And I, I I think I mentioned this earlier, but when I went to TerraCycle a couple of weeks ago
3: In for Trenton, a visit, New Jersey, they
1: yeah. yeah they had um, all manner of recovered plastics in their office as as things like even cubicle dividers and you know I mean I it's a little that's not art but actually they did have some art you know with in in their in their facility that was all based on stuff so I think you know you don't we're, we're sort of over pounding people on the head with this and we're what we want to do is prompt people to take action so yeah I love love her thinking on this
0: one. Yeah, and there's a straw apocalypse, which is an installation made of 168,000 drinking straws that were recovered from the streets in Vietnam. And and there's a there's an artist uh, who's been doing this for a long time called Chris Jordan. I think he's up in Seattle, and he has a uh, a series called Running the Numbers, where he's in a portraits of global mass culture. Um, you can go to Chris Jordan, C H uh, R I S Jordan, like the country dot com, um, and he's, he's done some really interesting things. You know, picturing you know what what waste looks like or i remember you know he there there's images that are really interesting and then you get in closer and you realize it's made up entirely of cigarette butts or something it sounds you know in some ways not appealing but it's actually quite illuminating uh he's done this 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 great series it's called running the numbers you can look it up um but yeah the, the, this is all towards how do we talk about this stuff and 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 paint a picture literally in some cases about what's what's going on out there I still have to say that you know the straw apocalypse and some of Chris Jordan's stuff and some of the things that Lawrence talking about are still just they're, they're, it's another version of hitting us over the head it's more visual and it's less you know you know just sort of apocalyptic I guess than seeing a you know turtle with a straw in its nose but it still looks at the, at, at the problem and so there is a certain numbingness that that, that that does result from that. So I guess we still have to um, think more about how do we tell this story in a more positive way that may not use the word circular or economy. And I think that's going to be an interesting conversation going forward. And meanwhile, worlds colliding here, uh, Madeline Cuff, uh, who's one of our 30 under 30s, and this year, and writes for uh, Business Green in the UK, and who I'll be seeing uh, next week when I'm in London. I wrote a piece uh, about it's time to include developing nations more holistically in circular economy uh, discussions, and uh, this is based on a, a paper that was recently released by by Chatham House that warns about that how we're considering circular economy may not necessarily be. Applicable to developing nations, and and we risk them missing out on on what she calls a critical pathway for sustainable growth. So this is, uh, you know, we've long talked about circular economy as as creating opportunity at every uh, part of the economic spectrum, but it seems in practice that's not necessarily the case
1: yeah and I think this also harkens to some of the investments that we 've seen in other countries you know so when you when you talk about the startups that, that various organizations like mean the closed loop are are, are, are uh, funding that that there's sort of um and i think the word holistically is the important thing is that we all know that emerging nations are the ones that are being probably more um, detrimentally impacted by the waste issues that we have, and in in particularly plastics, of course. But at the same time, they are also economies that have sort of inherent, um, bi- uh, you know, I'll say it, bias and behavior to be circular. They're so resource savvy and creative, and they look at ways of using things in different manners that, you know, here in the Consumption-minded United States, we probably don't think about it in the same way. So, you know, there's she advantages. She says from Canada. I say from Canada. <laughs> you know, Canada is actually well, they're di- they're di- a bit different from the U.S. I I, will, I won't even go there. <laughs> that's that's a whole other podcast. But um, you know, as far as the the way that people think about how they consume items, there is definitely so much we can learn from other economies that have a, just a different approach to resources, and so I think the point that is well made in this story is that you know we, we can't keep trying to start these programs without more meaningfully and thoughtfully engaging and you know at the, at the very highest levels of, of government and, and and maybe also at the very localist levels of communities in, in which could benefit from that um, sort of instead of having all these little fragmented things going on. I, I think that there's a, a, a turning point, or at least a, a moment to look for in um, in uh, Japan. I, they're talking about the G twenty meeting, where this the, this could be a, uh, op- an opportunity to really focus on getting that dialogue started. So I I love this piece by Maddie. I think she, I think she goes by Maddie for for those who know her. <laughs> but um, it, it was just a very thoughtful and, and important topic.
0: And I love the way that we're getting more nuanced and uh, deeper into what are the implications of the circular economy. How does everybody get to play? It's not one of these, uh, uh, it's all good and you know, it's all circular and and without thinking it through. And so this is, is really interesting. And of course, I'll be doing a lot more on circular economy next week when I'm with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation uh, in London and some other meetings I'll be having there. So I just, I, I can't, get enough of this topic and uh, it just uh, and I and fortunately there's plenty more to come on this topic from us. As I said earlier, I started the week off in Geneva and one of the visits there was at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development had a half-day marathon uh, conversation with about seven or eight different people. And coincidentally, it was on the same day that we announced our 30 under 30 for 2019. And one of the people I got to see was one of our first 30 under 30s, Emily Grady, who's part of WBCSD team. Hey, Emily. Hi, Joel. So when you were 30 under 30, you were working for WBCSD out of New York. Catch us up. How'd you get here? What are you doing?
4: Sure. So yeah, when I was 30 under 30, I was actively kind of working with your team at GreenBiz on uh, various events in um in our in North America, where WBCSD has partnered with Green Biz in the past. Um and I was I was largely working as a sort of a, a person based in the US who was trying to help the World Business Council gain some some footing in the US with um with the, the various member companies that are headquartered there. Um, And as over that time, I got really interested in the food and agriculture work that WBCSD um, was driving out of our our Geneva office. And so I an opportunity opened up and I applied for it and um, have since about a year and a half ago, moved over to Geneva to support our food and nature program. Um, And I can I can talk more about that.
0: Yeah. So talk more about that
4: <laughs> so the, the the food and nature program has a number of different elements to it um, spanning food and agriculture forests water um, and other topics um, linking together you know basically food food and nature I've been working on a project called the true value of food and um, in this project we're working with um, the, the multinational member companies of WBCSD that are largely in the, the food and agriculture space. Who are looking to develop a more systematic approach to measuring and valuing their impacts and dependencies and the associated risks um, of, of operating as a food or agriculture company today? So, we're working with them to develop a, a systematic and standardized approach to, to doing this work. And um, we see a, a lot of opportunity to then build out the use case with investors or with consumers or policymakers and others to, to, to drive more consistency in how companies are measuring and valuing their, their impacts and dependencies.
0: So what are going to be the outputs of this? What, what are the tools that you're going to create?
4: Sure. So we're building off of a, a large body of work that's already exists, the, the Natural Capital Protocol, the Social and Human Capital Protocol, the Team for Agribusiness and Food Foundations Report. So there's a wide mix of material out there. Um, But we will be creating guidelines that are specific to the food and agriculture sector companies um, that will be fairly prescriptive and eventually help um, drive for comparability across companies so that uh, in in the same way that you can compare across financial metrics, you'd also be able to compare uh, companies by their their, uh, metrics related to social and human capital and natural capital.
0: So why would a company want to do that? What will that enable them to do?
4: So we think um, what we've heard from the members that we're working with is being able to, um, to tell their story in a, in a, through numbers in a systematic way is attractive. They, they see the opportunity of painting a new picture for investors and potentially getting more preferential um, access to capital. It may also enable them to um, build new, new, and better relationships with policymakers and have preferential procurement um, decisions made. For example, because with with very rigorous and science based, uh, consistent reporting on on their impacts and dependencies related to natural, social, and human capital, they um, you, you start to diminish the. The risk of, for example, greenwashing. Um, there's a more of a consistent method of, of doing this work, so that it's it's easier to to show kind of the the pathway to consistent measurement and valuation.
0: And I know this is part of a larger body of work that the World Business Council for Sustainable Development is doing around nature-based solutions um, to climate and biodiversity and and other things. And so, this is all uh, seems to be part of a a. a a bunch of work that's starting to ramp up over the next year or so.
4: Yeah, exactly. I think um, this work is very much a way of tying it all together. The guidelines will have some specifics around how do you measure and value biodiversity, which is it's a challenging and complicated topic. But you know what is it? You uh, you don't value what you don't measure, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. And so we need to give we need to give companies the tools, at least as and a starting point, to enable that to happen.
0: So, Emily, before I let you go, you've you've worked uh, in sustainability in North America and now in Europe. What do you uh, – we, we always assume in the United States that um, it's much further – the companies here are much more tuned into sustainability and are much further along in their journeys. Um, what's the reality on the ground? What have you learned or been surprised about in, in terms of how sustainability looks in Europe? Uh, and I know you – World Business Council works – much broader than Europe, than but living here, how's the view from over here?
4: Gosh, I think there's a wide, I mean, there across the US and across Europe, there's such a wide spectrum of maturity in companies as they approach sustainability. And um, But I think one of the interesting things that I've picked up is that they're, especially when you get to this question of collaboration and something that we really focus on at WBCSD, when you can sort of break down the, the competitive barriers and acknowledge that there's this whole space for collaboration on issues of sustainability, social and environmental, you you can really move the needle uh, much more quickly across the board for companies in this space. I think um, in the in the U.S. I felt that there were um, there's quite a lot of innovation, especially in the food and agriculture space, and we see that as a an area where there's a lot been a lot of investment and sort of excitement in the in the in the industry. In Europe, I see some of the really large companies taking up pretty progressive approaches to engaging in sustainability. And so I think there's there are different ways in which the different regions are. You see kind of sustainability as a topic maturing, but I think uh, they're complementary, and we see. Um, you know, different portions of companies that operate in different regions also building off of each other's expertise and trying to to drive that work forward.
0: Well, it's great to see you and uh, hear your great success and being over here and all of that. Um, Thanks so much for sharing with us. Emily Grady is Manager Food and Nature at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and one of our Green Biz 30 Under 30s from 2016. Great to see you, Emily.
4: Thanks so much, Joel. Good to see you too.
0: As I said, I spent part of my week in Amsterdam, and while I was there, I met with Harold Friedel, who is the CEO of Circle Economy, a five- or six-year-old a, a non-profit organization doing some amazing work around the world on circularity. Uh, Harold, it's good great, great to see you again.
5: Thank you. Nice to have you over here.
0: Uh, one of the things we, that you're doing that I thought was really interesting is working with cities in uh, in Europe and increasingly in North America and beyond, uh, helping them. What are you trying to help
5: them do? Talk a little bit about your work with cities. So at Circular Economy, we generally try to take businesses and cities, and also governments, from linear to circular. So people often start with the question, what does a circular economy that is so appealing as a concept mean for us? And I think as the discussion is becoming also more about solutions, we want solutions, circularity is seen as a solution framework that is very useful. So a city would come to us with a question, how can we apply this to our city? The different angles that we are asked for to intervene from, sometimes it comes more from the business community. A chamber of commerce that comes and says, how can we create the new sustainable jobs of the future? Because we know things are changing rapidly. Technological innovation, etc. The other one is cities have uh, uh, have requirements to change. I mean, climate change is one. The targets that they are pursuing. North America is a classic, I think, where despite the overall uh, narrative in the political scene, the cities become uh, really drivers for change. Uh, and the cities we see as a galvanizing pot on where the the political power is much closer to the people. And I think that's why for us, we have seen it as a very good driver for circularity uh, from a very practical angle. That's what we do. So we work with a multi-stakeholder approach where we work with the business community and the government, so the city government and civil society to see what are the solutions for the future. The first thing that always happens is we're breaking down silos in the city. So the environment department would then immediately work together with the people who work on jobs and growth and employment and the city planners. And that's why it's so intriguing and then together think what is a thriving city how should a city look like that is really working for the people can you talk
0: about a city that is seems to be on the right path That seems to be on its way to uh, being and what do you actually even call is it a circular city or is it what do you call it
5: yeah, circular, circular city doesn't matter so much. That would be one opportunity uh, to call it maybe also a thriving city. I really like that idea. And um, a city with a high living standard for its people, uh, for happy citizens. That's, I think, what comes what comes back in some research now. So let's call it a circular city um, or a thriving city for, for our interview's purpose. Um, and then it's, uh, it's looking at... I don't like to give judgments because there are fantastic mayors around the world that are really driving this. I had recently a talk with Singapore where the story is very different from Amsterdam. But now we are here in Amsterdam and we have started the journey together with them six years ago where there was the first idea how can we apply this very general concept to, uh, to the city of Amsterdam and now it has become policy and that's the interesting thing and we did a piece um, a study last year where we evaluated more than 70 pilot projects, 70, seven zero, that came out of this first roadmap and it has shown that circular economy works. I think that's really encouraging, it works because now we need to prove it works in terms of jobs in terms of less uh, carbon emissions and in terms of more opportunities generally for the community to engage in yeah. So this is
0: one of the challenges with cities and states and everybody else is just a lack of funds to invest in things like that. How do you do do that? Do you find savings that then they can apply or do they have to come up with new money to invest? Uh, What are you seeing as the the pathway from a financial perspective into cities becoming uh, resilient and, and circular and thriving?
5: Yeah, I think we have seen it from both. On the one hand, when you uh, when you talk about the city's own money, public procurement, we have now in city they are, they're installing or inserting circular principles into building codes. So there they're using their own money. So there are the finances come from. But we also see pilot projects that are just paid for from private investors. And I think we have seen in last year also in North America uh, more funds now being available. Really, uh, VCs investing in circularity. So we'll see a big push. Because um, uh, money, money wants to look into the right direction as well. I think you see a slow change in the financial sector. Uh, some of the big banks here in Holland particularly look into circularity as an investment portfolio. They are positioning themselves as such. So I'm very, I'm, very, um, I'm very positive that there will be more funding available and it will always come from the city side or from the public side mixed with VCs, but also angel investors that we see here and there popping up. Great. Well, it's it's really
0: exciting, and you what's going on here in the, in the Netherlands with the national commitment to be circular by what 2050, yeah. I think. And what you what you're helping to spur here in in Amsterdam is really an inspiration for us in North America, and frankly, the rest of the world. Thanks for showing the way. Harold Friedel is the CEO of Circle Economy. It's uh, circle-economy.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, check it out. Uh, great to see you, Harold.
5: Thank you very much. And truly, it's a joint effort. We learn as much from you as we learn from the people in Asia and in Africa. And hopefully, circular economy brings us all closer together.
2: Hello there, it's Katie Fahrenbacher, senior writer with GreenBiz. And last month, I took a trip down to the waterfront of the San Francisco Bay Area, where, nestled between Fisherman's Wharf and the vendors hawking clam chowder-filled bread bowls, sits what might be the future of ferry transportation. There you'll find the Enhydra, a 128-foot-long hybrid ferry operated by Red and White Fleet, a tour guide company that's one of San Francisco's oldest businesses. The boat can shuttle up to 600 passengers for over an hour using lithium-ion batteries. For a ferry, that can mean a few things. It can cut dirty diesel fuel use, reduce air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions, and also operate silently. According to Bloomberg, there are currently 185 battery-powered marine vessels either operating or planned for delivery around the world, including 58 passenger ferries. Many of those electric ferries are in Norway, which wants two-thirds of the boats that carry passengers and cars around its coast to be electric by 2030. Similar to the way that transit buses are swiftly going electric, passenger ferries provide a good use case for batteries because they generally go short distances, start and stop regularly, and don't need to go particularly fast. The silent operation and reduction of diesel fumes also make the electric ferry experience particularly nicer than the traditional diesel-powered one. Back in the Bay Area last month, red and white fleet engineer Paul Smith was kind enough to show me around the anhydra. I met up with him on a typical clear and crisp San Francisco morning and after boarding the boat we climbed down a ladder into the engine room and through a door into the battery room. And it's all electric or it's a hybrid?
5: It's hybrid. It's hybrid. Well, hybrid in that
0: it can operate on the batteries.
1: These are two sets of 80 kW lithium ion batteries.
2: Corvus? Corvus Energy is a company that builds energy storage systems for the maritime industry. The Enhydra also uses software that can automatically switch the boat onto the battery power or the engines when needed. After we checked out the engine room, we walked up to the control room, where Paul showed me how the Enhydra operates. And then you can see how um, full, how charged the battery is yeah, that? Yeah, so like if we were, uh, you can hear the engine start barely. It just shifted it
0: to auto, so now it's, it's charging the batteries because the battery's below 87 percent.
2: There's still a small amount of battery-powered ferries operating around the world, but that number is set to grow quickly. A company called Made of the Mist, which ferries people up to Niagara Falls, is in the process of deploying all-electric ferries. And Washington State Ferries, which has a really substantial ferry business in the Northwest, is adding in hybrid ferries as its ridership and routes grow. So, who knows? Maybe the next time you find yourself climbing aboard a ferry for a coastal tour or a seaworthy commute, your boat just might be cruising on battery power.
1: As we mentioned earlier in this episode, we'd love to feature some thoughts and, and hopes from our current class of 30 under 30. They will introduce themselves and share some of their aspirations.
6: Hi, I'm Ashley Fahey and I am a sustainability principal with Goodyear. I think business in general you know, has such an opportunity to make a big impact on the world. Um, you know, certainly a huge driver for change. And when I thought about Goodyear um, and and tires, I mean, it's tires are something that we all have to use on a daily basis. You know, whether that's hopping in our own cars, or you know, hopping on a bike, or mass transportation on a bus, even flying in an airplane. So, uh, Goodyear, you know, provides tires for all of, like, almost all of those applications. And so, through that, I think we have an opportunity to make a really big impact. Even if people don't think about tires every day, you know, maybe they just think about them once every couple of years when they need new tires. Um, the the products that we make end up all over the world, and and people are using them every day. So I really loved the opportunity to make that kind of impact. As I've gotten older and, and matured and understand myself more. Um, especially since I've, you know, transitioned, uh, you know, kind of becoming a transgender woman. Um, it's helped me to really uh, be more confident in myself and, and realize that, you know, sometimes these differences are, you know, what make us stronger, what make us special. And um, I, I really think that empathy can actually extend beyond just sort of a person to person Um, you know understanding but also thinking about uh, you know having uh, trying to influence deeper understandings for our planet right the resources that we're given in this one earth I think in the future if people were able to to better understand each other and 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 be more comfortable with some of those differences as well as our planet you know we would be in a much better place
3: I'm uh, Benji Backer. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and a student at the University of Washington in Seattle, but also run the American Conservation Coalition, which is a nonprofit focused on bringing conservative voices back into environmental discussions. I actually grew up very active in the conservative movement, doing a lot of campaigning and going around the country speaking, being kind of a young leader uh, within the conservative movement for many years. And something that I was very frustrated by was the lack of involvement from conservatives on the environment. Um, and as I got older, I realized the importance of bipartisan discussions and how conservatives being outside of environmental discussions was not only detrimental to the movement that I appreciated, by the conservative movement, but it also was detrimental to the environmental movement and getting things done uh, so we decided uh, as as a group of kind of young students that I knew through other political activism that that needed to change uh, that conservatives needed to engage a lot more and so we formed a, kind of a exploratory committee um, my freshman year of college um, really just, just saying we want to be the change uh, in the world even as young people who are mostly you know undergraduates if not freshmen and sophomores in uh in the college setting um and we didn't really know how far we could take it um and i really had no expectations when when i started this up uh but we thought that we could make a difference by bringing conservatives back into the discussion um fast forward two and a half years later and you know we're a massive organization on a national scale um, i think it speaks to the the need from other americans to have more bipartisan dialogue um, i think it also speaks to the need for uh, people in the conservative movement to have a voice on environmental issues especially young people um and it also speaks to the difference that young people can make i mean we been mostly under 25 on our team in terms of age since the beginning, and we've been able to make an impact that most people could never imagine for people uh, running the organization so young. Um, For me personally, I got involved with the environmental conversation because of the political aspect and how I felt like it was really disappointing how partisan it was, Uh, but I also got involved because I grew up outdoors. Um, we had a cabin that we'd go up to in northern Wisconsin where I grew up um, that was just absolutely beautiful and learned to love the outdoors there. And my family, when we went on vacation, we would go to national parks. And just growing up and seeing nature firsthand was a really big, uh, you know, reason why the environment became a priority for me at a very young age, even from ages, you know, six, seven, eight those were the ages where I really started to say, hey, you know, this is something that I care about. And uh, even if it was small, tangible things like picking up trash and, um, you know, just being environmentally conscious, those were things I was doing at a young age. So combining that with the political need is how we ended up, you know, where we are today.
7: My name is Holly Beal and I lead data center community environmental sustainability for Microsoft. I really am passionate about the employee engagement piece. We have so many smart people in the company and so many passionate people. I mean, I'm seeing more and more people at Microsoft from all parts of the business who are so passionate in this area but just haven't really had the channel or the avenue to make the changes they want to see. And maybe they feel like there's not been the listening channels within the company or not been others that they can connect with. Uh, who also share these passions and feel like people feel can feel pretty alone. I know I did. I felt pretty isolated. I felt like, man, am I really the only person who's thinking about this stuff at Microsoft? I mean, just trying to change us from all disposable cutlery and all of our dining wares, it's all disposable and going to the top leaders of Microsoft in real estate facilities and saying, can we move to durables? Can we move away from all these disposables? And they are think, wow, you're the first person that's come to us to say this. So I'm like, really? There's got to be more people that care about this than, than just me. And it turns out there are we just have to find each other. And so that's why I'm really excited about this worldwide sustainability community that we're building here at Microsoft. And now we're almost a thousand strong and where it's this grassroots collective activism that's just really invigorating to me to help to be the catalyst um, to not just see what I can do as an individual, but to inspire others to do more and be more and become more. So that's that's at least right now, if, if I couldn't do this job anymore, um, being in a position to enable others to feel like there's a community, feel like there is a chance to make a change um, in their company or beyond uh, is really inspiring to me and, and something that I, I would aspire to to do more of.
8: Hi, I'm Gianna Amador, the co-founder and managing director at Carbon 180, a nonprofit on a mission to fundamentally rethink carbon. I had the opportunity to have like a very visceral interaction with climate change as it was happening today. Um, I worked on the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, where there are a lot of indigenous communities. And I saw them, you know, dealing with sea level rise and experiencing the impacts of deforestation and loss of biodiversity and loss of their like traditional ways of lives. And so for me, that was like a huge, huge wake up call where I was like, oh my gosh, like climate change isn't just something that like we talk about happening in 30 years, but it's something that's literally impacting people today. It's impacting their, their livelihood. I came back to Berkeley and I like really, really dove into you know, everything about climate change. And I ended up taking a climate law and policy class. And that's sort of where I connected with Noah around this concept of carbon removal. And one of the things that really surprisingly interested me about carbon removal was this like piece that focused on agriculture and agriculture being part of the climate solution set. And I feel like all of my background and thing that I had sort of wanted to move away from was actually what really drew me to this like amazing opportunity to found Carbon 180, which at the time was called Center for Carbon Removal. And I think looking back now on like my childhood and my experience growing up in the California Central Valley, I don't think you really realize until you're out of a place like that, that like Turlock and the Central Valley has like super high poverty rates very often like experiences a high density of food deserts like has a lot of water and air quality issues and like those are things that i never really realized until i was out of the central valley and i really see this like opportunity around carbon removal not only as a way to engage the agriculture industry around being part of the climate solution but also drive this huge opportunity for people in the area to create better lives, to create jobs and economic opportunity and better air and better water for these communities that are traditionally like disregarded and underserved, honestly.
9: Hi, uh, my name is Alexia Orokamora. I work at Ernst & Young, IWAI Japan in the Climate Change and Sustainability Service Department. So I think it's very good to focus on the the positive out there. Well, globally, though, I have to be honest with you, I think Japan is very much behind on every aspect of sustainability, which is also why I think it's kind of uh, also there's a bit uh, it makes sense for me to be here. I think that's I mean, the general realization that Japan is behind does make it a bit more worthwhile for me to be here um, in a way, I guess, because uh, I mean, there's an impact for to my work. Uh, now, what where does it excel? I would say in resource efficiency, I think they're really good at that. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been personally to Japan, but like you can actually see in the daily life of people. Uh, people really don't waste food. I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure it's a big thing in the US as well. I mean Europe, in, in recent years has been the the focus of policymakers like food waste is a big issue in our societies. and in Japan it's not. I mean, I mean it's much less actually the, the there is a lot of food waste but most of it is really actually highly recycled and even in the in the mentality of people it's really uh, very important for them not to waste anything and at the corporate side i think it's very much embedded and and you, you can see that the uh, in, in terms of especially food food uh, food waste there's a lot, a lot being done and especially since the the 2011 tsunami uh, Fukushima accident, uh, and now even even more so in the in the energy in the energy uh, side, there's also a lot of uh, energy efficiency program being implemented. The buildings uh, have been reno- renovated, uh, the offices, the not so much the the housing uh, sector, but it's getting there as well. Uh, so I think in terms of uh, resource efficiency, is very yeah, is very good.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com/slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts called Center Stage: The Best of Live Interviews from Greenbiz Events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week. I'll be in London, and Heather, you'll be back at home base. I will. Safe travels to you. And until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.